Hello and welcome to The Trials, the system play test actual play podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and tonight I have brought back to the table two of the three players that joined me for our trial of Simba Room, the Scandinavian D&D-ish clone game. Uh, Scott and Caleb, say hi to everybody, please. Hello. Howdy, all you folks in Radio Land. So our faithful listeners, or at least people who listened to the last couple episodes, might realize that we're missing somebody, and that is Matthew. Unfortunately, he is not able to be here tonight to join us for the recap episode, uh, but he did fill Caleb in on a lot of his thoughts and impressions, and Caleb will be sort of disseminating them as he feels necessary. I don't know. I might not, because he's abandoning us for Europe. Oh. The band? Like he's going on, he's going on, on a worldwide tour with Europe? Yes, that is exactly what he's doing. I can get behind that, actually. Eh, if we get some good seats, I might be fine. <laughs> All right, so without any further ado, let's just jump into the trial. So Scott was actually the DM for this game. Oh, I was. We, we had tried to set up our regular sort of person who created the game to run it for us or, or quote-unquote expert. Uh, and unfortunately, the language barrier was actually an issue. Um, we, were a, we were gifted a copy of the book for us to use, and Scott said, I'll do it. So he read the rules, he ran the adventure. So I'm going to start with you and kind of give us an overview of the mechanics of the game as you recall them from your brief study. Uh, well, yeah, I, I think, as I explained in the podcast, that, that if if you start from understanding the rules as D&D, you're going to be in the right ballpark. Every particular rule will be wrong, but but you'll be close. Um, the main differences are that rolling low on D20 is better. You are rolling against your stats almost always. There's no such thing as skills or abilities that enhance your stats. Uh, the players always roll, so the, that that's a significant difference that the DM never does. And that's uh, sort of interesting. You use the stats of your opponents to modify your own stats to get uh, what would be a difficulty rating. Um, there's no leveling. It's instead you have a point-based advancement system where every experience point you earn can be spent now or later on uh, advancements or upgraded abilities. And, of course, the corruption mechanic, which we talked just a little bit about, um, was a little bit unique. It's, it's uh, covered in spellcasting, and also it suffuses into the fluff of the system. And um, sort of give us an overview of that as well. Like, what sort of setting is this set in? It's it's a, a fantasy world. There are um, sort of three major players in this world. There are the there's there's the the main kingdom of sort of humans and, and goblins, where their their motivation is to expand and build and harvest out the the, Dov- the Dovacar forest. There are the elves who live in the forest and protect it. They have what they consider an iron pact, an ancient treaty with the humans that forbids them from entering too deeply into the forest. And then there are the native barbarians who have a um, sort of symbiotic relationship with the forest where they, they use it but not too much and so they're maybe caught in between. It's it's a very uh, it's a primitive setting. It's 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 rough and tumble and, and dark. Obviously we got a little bit into that but uh, given that corruption underscores all mechanics and um, with uh, witches, witch sight and other abilities you can see the, the tainted shadows of those beings around you. It, it lends itself to sort of a darker, grittier setting, I think. 
All right. And then just sort of uh, lastly, we did play the adventure that comes in the book, but we did not complete it. Uh, we just because of time, we were not able to go all the way through it, but we did get to a, what we thought was a good stopping point. So it made a pretty good beginning, middle end to the adventure. And we think it did a pretty good job of exposing uh, the mechanics. Is there anything that maybe we didn't get to in that adventure that would be important for someone to know about the game, a mechanic or something about the setting that would have been revealed in the second half? Um, the the only things we missed were basically more components of the background. Like I mentioned, the, the Iron Pact and the Elves, you get into them toward the end, and you also get into, to, you, you meet some people who dove too greedily and too deep into the Dovacar Forest, and they uh, found something that was corrupted, and it in turn corrupted them, and then they turn into a, a magnificent whore from the beyond who you then have to beat into submission or hand over to the Elves as you see fit. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Uh, and then I guess my last question, and I'll turn it over to Caleb for his impressions. Uh, since you're the one that really went through the book, I understand that the art is something that's a lot of people that have seen the book mention about the art. Do you have any comments about it? I thought the art was fantastic. Even before I'd, I'd read other people's opinions about the book, the, um, just paging through it, the art is really striking. It's it's uh, one consistent style the whole way through. You know, you a lot of other... Uh, uh, role-playing books that I've looked through, uh, you know, they, they may manage some sort of cohesive style, right? That that all the Rift books or, or um, you know, the, the, the new 5e D&D style, it's it's consistent, but but there are certainly some subtle differences between artists. So, you, I mean, not so subtle, you can pick them out. Um, the the Simbaroom book, the the art is 100% on the ball. It really underscores the setting. It I think it sells the work. All right, very cool. All right, so Caleb, I'll basically turn it over to you for you and Matt's point of view. You can talk about the adventure we played, the characters you played, mechanics, or just any of your impressions that you had while we were playing. Uh, I think what strikes me most about this game is how much the uh, how much the flavor and the setting are important to the game itself. A lot of times when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, the setting fades into the background. It becomes stereotypical, tropey fantasy. Sometimes you'll play a specific setting like Greyhawk or Eberron, in which case the setting becomes a bigger component. And those games tend to be really, really fun. But a lot of times it's just, yeah, we're in the woods. We're you're, in the mountains. You're in an inn. We're in a tavern. We're in a city. There's a dragon. With this game, I could not imagine playing it without knowing the setting and without being in this setting. I feel like the setting and the mechanics are married. They cannot be separated. I don't think that's a bad thing in any way, but it's something to be considered. If you are getting into this game, if you are getting this book, you need to play it in the setting. You need to read the setting. You need to know the organizations, the wood elves, the the barbarians. You need to be willing to dig into this universe and run a game in this universe. Now, I certainly don't think that it's impossible to borrow these mechanics and rip them into your own home game and, and hack them away. That's That's what we do. That's what GMs have fun with. But... I think for this system to be appreciated to its full extent, you got to be in the world created in this book. 
And and Scott, I think you did a great job with helping us understand. <laughs> to those not appreciating the visual gags that are happening, Scott does not agree with me. Uh, but as someone who did not read the book, I still felt that I was being introduced to the world with this introductory adventure. Um, and uh, speaking for Matt, he very much also uh, agrees with the whole the world being very uh, important to the story. Uh, so we're on the same page there. I think all of us can agree with that. Personally, I think it's kind of interesting that the barbarians are their own race. Uh, I'm, I'm more used to thinking of that as a class, but I guess that kind of is a little bit of maybe a throwback to the old Conan days where the wild people in the woods were considered the barbarian race to be dealt with. I don't know if that's a cultural thing. I don't know if that's just a choice they made. What do you guys think? I I, I get the impression that it's very much a stylistic choice. And in, in when they when they roll over the fluff, they talk about how they have these these three pacts of of groups of people. But they talk about how if if you went up to any one member of any one pact and said you are a barbarian or or you are a, a forest elf, they they'd probably disagree with you in some fundamental way. That 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 because it seems you know. From their perspective, sitting in the middle of, of their cultural forest, if you will, they, all they see is the trees around them and the dissimilarities between them and others. So, so the, the, I think the book uh, went a ways in des- describing how, yes, uh, it's, it's simplistic to group them as, as all barbarians, but the, the reality is not that case. That being said, um, it's, it's also interesting that the, sort of the approach that the mechanics take for races, where it's, it's not... Um, all, all, all the races give you is is maybe one required ability and maybe one optional ability, and that's it. After that, you can kind of build your character as you see fit. So I guess um, if if that's all you're getting out of a race, uh, then then barbarian may fit reasonably well within that. Uh, but but you, you know you you make a good point. It's 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 an interesting choice. Well, that's a great transition over the mechanics. Um, it, it seems like the the race is very much supporting the heavy flavor of this system. And by choosing human or elf or barbarian or goblin, it's it's more something to guide your role-playing choice and your perception of the world around you and not the mechanics. I really like the whole point-by-for-abilities system it is very reminiscent of Shadowrun, which is one of my favorite games. I like being able to essentially build my own class and character as I see fit. So if I start out wielding a sword and shield and through roleplay, it makes more sense that I start exploring the arcane magical arts. I just start buying those skills and... I'm I'm not locked into a class level system. I'm not penalized by trying to multi-class. I'm not trying to figure out 2.6 levels of this and half a hit die and and some crazy mismatched spell slot <laughs> deriv- derivation of something. Uh, I, I guess uh, with this type of ability by system, you still reflect a little bit of a penalty of choice by not pursuing one 
tree of abilities to its fullest extent, but you're really balancing out the role play and the flavor, which again goes back to what we said, that the flavor and the role play is so important to this system. So I think that was a great choice. Uh, we didn't get to build characters. It was all uh, pre-gens, but I think if I was starting from scratch and playing a campaign, I would have a lot of fun with all the different choices. Um, I also really liked the whole rolling low was better, mostly because we tend to always roll low when we are playing these games. So uh, we got a little bit of a bonus. That was fun. I felt successful for once. Yeah, your roles were like borderline, is he cheating? Because like, there was like three or four roles in a row. I'm like, dude, I, honestly, I don't think you're actually cheating. But I was just like, damn, like, Caleb's actually doing well tonight. What's up with that? <laughs> I promise you I was not cheating. <laughs> Chronically rolling down threes and twos. It was ridiculous. I, I yeah. know. I loved it. Um, was Was there any sort of critical system or critical success I, I don't really remember if that ever came uh, up not not that i uh, recall having read no it is very possible to have a test given your combination of of your abilities and the challenge and the abilities of the npc you may be competing against that is simply unpassable or unfailable and the system allows for that okay some some systems uh, that look at this type of comparison give you the, if you have beaten by three or by five or failed by three or by five, you get a, a level of success or a level of failure. I kind of like that, but it also adds a lot of extra paying attention to the roles. I liked how simple and straightforward what we were rolling was. It was just get lower than this. Oh, it's now higher. Oh, it's now lower. It, it was really simple. Um, so I, I feel like that is a, a great option for everybody. A, a new role player, a new gamer is going to figure this out pretty simply. And an experienced seasoned player is going to be able to either find the strategy and have fun with it or allow the mechanics to fade back a little bit and really get into the role playing, which is cool. Um, I, I've been thinking about this since we played. I really don't know how I feel about the lack of skills. On one hand, I like the simplicity. I like the fact that there was that flexibility to say, okay, well, how would you approach this? It's based on one stat or another. But on the other hand, I am the kind of player that I really like breaking down skills. And having something that I can see on my character sheet that I'm extra good at or I've specialized in. That's just me. We know that I am a little bit of a crunchier power gamer. Um, but uh, that's just my opinion. What did you guys think about the whole lack of skills? Well, there's actually, there's quite a few things that I want to roll back around and, and touch on. For me about the skills, I will say that that doesn't bother me. Uh, I'm actually kind of a, I'm, I'm okay with it not being that way. I, I, in fact, I would say I mostly prefer games that do it that way because I think in a lot, in some ways it allows a little bit more freedom to be creative in how you approach things. Like just because I don't have four ranks in rope use doesn't mean that I shouldn't be able to tie a goblin up. I would use my wits or maybe my survival or, or some other background trait to say, you know, I've spent 30 years in the woods. I know how to tie something up. 
so that doesn't bother me specifically. Uh, there's a couple things again. I want to circle around. We can we can jump back and forth, of course. Uh, but I wanted to ask Scott. So the the pregen characters that we started with, we had three humans and two barbarians. Goblins and elves weren't an option. Is there any restrictions in the game as a whole for playing those races, or was that just the ones they picked for that adventure? Um, the I I believe. I think there was a goblin on the, on those sheets. Yeah, I, I believe that the pre-builds did include uh, one goblin, and uh, he's he's pretty funny. He's a goblin witch, and he has um, what what looks to be a familiar or something. But but the mechanics work a little bit different for that. It's it's actually a large cow that the goblin has found and enchanted <laughs> with his goblin magic to follow him around and do his bidding. So uh, that's fun, but but the the one playable race listed in the the basic book that I didn't see in the pre-built characters that I may just have missed is ogre, and the fact that play ogres are a playable race is really interesting in this system, and the the fluff backstory for them that you know goblins have family units as do humans and uh, changelings we didn't talk about them they're a playable race they are you can't play as an elf but changelings exist as a um, when 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 elves will come in the night and steal a human child, they will replace that child with with a changeling, and it will look like your child until it gets about uh, pubescent, and then it will get these secondary characteristics that that lead it to never be fully an elf, but um, to look enough like a uh, an elf that that it marks as it is an outcast, and so you're this social. Um, outcast, de- de- degraded sort of being that where you can you can for short periods look like a normal human or a goblin or some other race that you see, but but you can't hold it on for a long time. That's really interesting because Shadow of the Demon Lord has that exact same fluff. You can play a changeling in that game, and it's the same thing that you've been stolen away, and and you're like a simulacrum that's been left behind, and eventually you fall apart. But some of them don't, and that's the race that you can play. So there must be actual myth in regards to that somewhere. And then the, the ogres, as an ogre, as a, as a player, you, you emerge from, from the Davakar forest with amnesia. That, that is how ogres come to the world, is that they, they walk out of the forest and they have no recollection of, of how they've left or what their lives were like up until this adult stage. Huh, that is kind of interesting. I wonder if that's something to do with people that went too far into the woods and they got transformed in some way. It's very possible. Very possible. It, it's also a, a cheat way to make sure that no one says, well, I'm an ogre. I know all the secrets of the forest because I grew up there. Oh, no, you don't. You have amnesia. <laughs> Good point. You jackal. Um, so a couple other things I wanted to touch on was the rolling low. I don't have a particular flavor. Like, it doesn't really bother me. I've played other games where you roll low. But for some reason, this game, that kind of made sense. It just felt right. When Scott was describing the setting, he talked about how the world was big. And, and just in the brief, you know, I read a little bit of the book before Scott said he would take over. And then you were explaining the setting. And it's a giant world. And we are just small parts of it. And I kind of think rolling low feeds into that. I mean, that's that's one of my complaints about games like Pathfinder and 3.5 where very quickly the D20 doesn't matter. I'm going to roll a D20, and I'm going to have plus 17 to the roll. So we're going to end up with a 34 at some point. And it's just such a big number that it just the D20 doesn't mean anything. When you're rolling low, there's a hard cap. You're never going to get lower than one. So I think immediately that makes the D20 more important. 
And I think the rolling low just, I don't know what it was, but psychologically it made me feel like I want to be small. I want to not be noticed because there's something worse right around the corner and I wanted, I just don't want to be seen. I don't know if I'm reading way too much into that, but that's how I felt. I thought that was very interesting. And I also think it's very interesting. I didn't even notice that you didn't roll, Scott. Until you said that, I'm like, holy crap, he's right. He never rolled. It was always us. And there's other games like Cypher System does that. I just, I don't know, but for some reason it didn't, it didn't like stick out to me as unusual, which I think is good design because it, it wasn't like, oh, I don't roll, you have to roll. And then I want to touch lastly on what Caleb kind of started with is there's a ton of generic systems out there right now that are very good. Fate comes to mind, Savage Worlds comes to mind, Cypher System comes to mind, where you can take the base mechanics and you can put any setting on it that you want. And I think that's fantastic. But I think there's something very satisfying about having a system and a setting that are married together intimately in a way that you cannot separate them, as Caleb was saying. And when they work, they work very well. And I, I kind of enjoy that well as, as well. I would definitely say that's a positive of this game is that the setting and the mechanics do seem to blend together very well. And I don't know, it, it worked for me. And I also love the corruption, which there's a, there are some similarities between this and Shadow of the Demon Lord. And corruption and madness kind of goes along the lines too. I'm not saying one or the other is better, but they did remind me of each other. But I do enjoy that as well. I, uh, it kind of reminds me basically of Call of Cthulhu. Like this feels like a Call of Cthulhu d game where magic is an unknown power. It's dangerous to touch. And if you mess with it long enough, you're eventually going to go crazy and kill somebody. It's definitely a little bit of a trend, very subtly, that games are starting to include the price of magic. It, it, I, I'm seeing it, obviously this game and Shadow of the Demon Lords jump right to mind. Call of Cthulhu has always had that as a component, uh, but I think in, in the fiction, in, in the flavor, there's a little more willingness to say hey you know what the whole high fantasy everyone has magic thing let's try something new let's try something where magic exists anybody can have access to it but it's not just this well of power it is something that has consequence and I don't think that's necessarily good or bad I just think it's an interesting trend that is starting to develop and it certainly opens up some really nice opportunities for interesting story hooks. On, on the, the similarity to Shadow of the Demon Lord, uh, having played that with uh, Schwab at Akatakon, I will say that one notable difference is that uh, Symborum has 100% less frogs in people's butts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've not played it a lot, so <laughs> that's temporary at best. And, uh, you know, getting back, Michael, to your point about, about the system being small, that's, that's a really interesting remark that um, it occurs to me that, you know, I've, I've played in modular systems and I've, I've played in, in level systems, I'm sure many of us have, but uh, one fascinating component about, about a, a, a very D&D similar or fantasy-based system like this that, that uses a point, um, point ability system is that there's basically, especially with, with the specific Symborum mechanics, there's almost no ability to increase your hit points. I mean, the, 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 the fact that the, the same things that could kill you at, at the beginning of the adventure in six months will still be able to slaughter you, wipe the floor, that's absolutely fascinating to me. As a concept of being small and vulnerable in a world that is so much bigger and beyond your understanding. Yeah, we we didn't get to that. That's actually terrifying. <laughs> like that because we almost died 
a lot. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a spell that was cast on Matthew's character that was like wow. Like I was I was literally like holy crap, that's a spell in this game. That's amazing. It's 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 a master level spell. It costs sixty points for it, and I think you guys had like the equivalent of twenty experience each or something, thirty maybe. And that's definitely a point that Matthew told me to bring up that the game is exceptionally brutal. It can be. Yeah, I, I mean, I've commented many times that 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons seems really brutal and it's really easy to have characters die at the drop of a hat. 5th edition D&D seems like a, a party time compared to this game. I felt very not hampered by my lack of health and abilities, but I very much got the sense of if I make the wrong choice, I'm going to be dead very early on. We, we didn't really have a lot of combat, but the combat we did have, I was apprehensive to make tactical combat choices. Hmm. There, was, there was that moment where I wanted to flank the bad guy and you told me, okay, that's fine, but he's going to get a free hit on you. And I said, oh, he'll probably kill me. I'm going to stay here. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a moment. So that actually is a, a question I wanted to bring up because this, in a lot of ways, this reminds me of, of one of the games that I tried to create back in college when I was trying to create my own game. Obviously, I was terrible at it, but there's a couple similarities like low hit points, very dangerous. And one of the things that I did with mine is I tried to make weapon speed matter because this was back before I was all fluff master and I wanted it all crunchy. And, uh, and it was interesting that with a two-handed weapon, I got a free attack as I moved into range. So what is the counter to that? Like if I, once I'm in range, if someone has a dagger, do they get to attack more than once? Like, is there a, a balancing mechanic there or did you maybe don't even know that for sure? Um, I, I know that, that, uh, there, there are alternatives to using a large weapon, like two weapons, obviously, or, but, but, but otherwise I, I think I'd have to see the system more in play to understand exactly how that balances out. I would wager a guess by looking at some of the other pregens that if you have the two-weapon abilities, you're getting to roll multiple damage dice on one attack. So, like, you had a, a great sword or whatever, and I think you rolled a d12. Yes. Uh, you got a free attack as you were moving in range, and but then you were just rolling one attack at a time. If I had two weapons and I was facing off with you and I scored a hit, I'd be rolling double the damage dice that you were rolling against me. And I, I, with I, I think we had, what, eight hit points, ten hit points? Yeah, about, about 12 maybe, yep. Yeah, two dice of damage can very easily slaughter you. Oh, especially if you don't get hit points as you level up. It just seems that outside of range combat with the ability that to, to almost kill anybody the first hit, that that extra hit's pretty pretty powerful. So that's just something to consider. I, I also think that, that it's it's a trade-off that with the two-handed weapons, as I recall looking through the abilities, there the abilities for those tend to, to increase the size of your one damage die. But they have other abilities that add like a sneak attack or, or like ranger-like abilities that give you an extra d4 on the top. And so then you're, I think, you're looking at it, 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 more dice will be better for low-armored opponents or no-armored opponents, and fewer large dice will be better for high-armored opponents. Yeah, based on my rolls, I could just about not kill 
it would be difficult for me not to kill like a peasant or a, a commoner of some yeah, sort that, with that, that free attack. That caravan guard was pretty brutalized. <laughs> and, and, and the fact that you can only heal one hit point a day. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of armor, the armor rolled for how much it blocked. That was a little odd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's that the, the monster damage and armor is both fixed. So the player is always rolling. So the player rolls to damage the, the monsters, and their armor is fixed. And then you roll to not damage yourself when the monster attacks. Hmm. Which I do, again, I think that it kind of adds to the uncertainty of the world. That there was one time, actually I think there were two times I got attacked, and both times I didn't take any damage because I rolled super well. And then one time I got attacked, I think I rolled a one, and I took essentially max damage. And it, it was like brutal when that happened. So I thought that, you know, I, I, I like that. Uh, one other comment I wanted to mention, just looking up here at my character sheet. The character sheet is about a four, maybe five inch tall, two inch wide block of numbers. That's it. Like the entire character sheet is not even a full column in the book, and half of that's fluff. That's pretty remarkable that for a game that does have this much mechanical uh, workings, that it's very condensed, and but yet it made sense. Like, I don't think... Other than having to learn at the beginning what our abilities did, like it didn't explain that we had to write those down separately. But if you know what your abilities do, you really don't need more than a note card for your character sheet. I, I will say the, the counterpoint to that is that um, the, the monsters are built completely as characters. They have the exact same ability array that you guys, and they buy abilities out of the book just like you, uh, characters do. And so uh, that, that made looking through a, a a block of monsters a little tricky because I had to do a lot of paging back and forth. Oh, what does this ability do? What what level is it at? And then uh, also, at least uh, in my past experience of building monsters out for a system like GURPS, where you're, you know, you're doing like 600-point superheroes, and so I have to build up two 600-point supervillains to fight you guys, and then you cream them in one round because I picked the wrong abilities. And you guys know <laughs> yours, and I'm just guessing. It, 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 it does add a bit of an onus onto the, the Game Master to uh, have their stuff together at least a little bit more than I did for this first game. Well, I think that could potentially also allow for some interesting changes to monsters. If they're pretty much built like a character and you know that, oh, this monster, this monster, not the cheese, monster... Uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit hungry tonight, I'm sorry. <laughs> if this monster has 100 points worth of abilities and you know that because it says it or you know the level or you just figure it out because you look at the numbers, you can say, okay, well, let me take this shell of a monster and reassign these 100 points of abilities. Now I have a monster with essentially class levels. Or now I have the monster that has some weird unique magic to throw players for a loop and why is this monster totally different that's a super easy story hook right there mm -hmm. works for me there we go si silence is the best form of agreement <laughs> yes <laughs> uh so i'm trying to think i'm just kind of going through the um the module so there was a period there was once where we kind of got into an investigative phase and each of us sort of divided up and had to do our own portion. Matthew went and talked to someone. I sort of roughed someone up. And then Caleb did the actual, like, looking for clues. So how did that feel in your eyes, Caleb? Because, again, you didn't have skills. I don't, And honestly, I don't even remember what you had to roll to find that. So do you think for, like, an investigative-type game this would work? Or is that really not what this is suited for? I feel like 
when I said I wanted to investigate and then I realized I had no investigate skill to roll, it then fell on me to describe and role play how I was investigating. And then Scott said, okay, well, it seems like you described picking things up and moving them around, so that kind of fits with this skill. Or it seems like you described just being very observant and being slow and careful, so that kind of corresponds to this skill. I don't think it's a perfect way to handle skill checks and skill challenges, but it certainly puts the emphasis on the player to really define how and what he or she is doing. And that's, to me, a little bit of a throwback to older editions of Dungeons & Dragons, where it really mattered how you walked into the room and what you checked for a trap. And if you literally said, I pick the thing up and look at it, but the it's the trap is triggered by moving it and not looking at it, the it, it, it could be different. And, and that was a horrible jumble of words. I apologize, but you know what I mean. Yeah, and that's one of the things about old school D&D that it, it can be contentious. And I'm of two minds because I'm of two minds of almost everything that I enjoy a game that is more focused on role play and where my actions and decisions mean a lot more than the dice ever do. But I also understand as uh, as an ambassadorship to the hobby, I don't want someone who's never played before to have a really crappy experience because they don't know that and their characters keep dying over and over again and they, they don't come back. So that's why skills are there that, you know, I can't actually throw a fireball, but my character can. So if it comes time to that, I roll a dice. Your character may not actually know how to look for traps in a dungeon adequately, but your character can, so you can roll the dice. And I think I said it backwards, but you know what I mean. So I'm a, I'm of two minds. I personally enjoy that, but I do feel like that makes this game a little bit more advanced and might be a harder entry point for someone who's never played a game before. But on the flip side to that, it could be easier for someone who's not played a game because they are not trying to use the things on their character sheet to make a decision. If someone has never played before and I as the GM simply say, you're in a room, describe what you are doing. If the person looks at their character sheet and says, oh, well, I have this skill that says investigate, so I guess I investigate the room. Good point. It kind of limits it. But if there's nothing that says investigate and the char- and you sell the- tell the player, what are you doing? They're going to say, well, I guess I walk over to the bed and, and look under the sheets and I-, I look behind the curtains. Now they're role-playing. Now they're interacting with this make-believe world. Is there a frog in the room? And did it come out of someone's butt? So in, in general, there's no right answer. I, I think... Michael, you have some excellent points, and selfishly, I have some excellent points, too. (laughs) I said, I don't know if you heard me, but I agree with you. I said, yes, that's actually a very good point. Yeah. Um, Mechanics and skills and stuff in the character sheet can be a crutch, and whether that's good or not is kind of up to each individual situation. And and not only can they be a crutch, at least in my experience, as as, uh, running games, Often they can become uh, an almost a nuisance if, if if all players have ten skills, 
and in the particular game or setting that you're in for the next 20 sessions, only three of those skills are really going to be relevant, right? There's not a lot of use for profession cooking for the next three months. There's not a lot of use for, for you know, animal husbandry, maybe, or there's not a lot of use for history of nobility. But but that character, the, the player at the table who invested all those points in that history of nobility, tries to use it at every turn, at every encounter. And so it's 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 almost nice that you you... By eliminating that choice, you don't end up with players sitting at the table feeling like they they have abilities they aren't using. You don't have that player who wants to pickpocket every person every time because they have a pickpocket skill that's amazing. Oh yeah, I can't even begin to tell you how many D&D 3.5 characters I built that have two ranks in craft whatever the hell because I needed those two ranks to get into a prestige class. Or I needed those two ranks for a feat to work properly. So there's definitely uh, uh, downsides to micromanaging skills. And I think this is all great conversation, but I think we're getting a little off track of talking about the game specifically. This is more general conversation. So trying to move it right back into that game, I think we agree that not having skills works for that game. It does limit some of your choices, but in some cases that might actually be an enhancement. Because if you like this game and this is the game you're going to choose to play, you probably are okay with the fact that there's no skills. So is there anything else about the game, the setting, or the mechanics that we need to touch on? Any other thoughts from Matthew that you have stored up, Caleb? Uh, In general, he liked the mechanics. He thought they were really easy to figure out. He liked how easy it was to approach a pre-gen character. Other than spending 10 or 15 minutes off mic looking up certain abilities, there was nothing really to figure out about these characters. Here's your skills. Here's what you do. Roll low. The the rest is all (laughs) role-playing. And uh, I I think the the lack of skills kind of uh, intensifies the strangeness of the world around you as, as characters. Huh. That you are not specially prepared to experience this world. Yeah. There is no particular training that will protect you from the mysteries of Dovacar. Right. I, I, I don't have a skill that says survival or mysteries nature. Mysteries of Dovacar. Or Arcana. <laughs> or mysteries of Dovacar. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as as a D&D ranger, I know that I can roll survival and find food and find directions. As someone wandering the woods in this mysterious Dovacar, I don't know what the hell's going on. I do think this was probably one of the more roleplay heavy, the trials that we have done. Uh, I think Wushu is the exception to the rule of all time because it's so rules light and it was a crazy game. But if you think about it, I think that that's probably why I didn't even notice that Scott wasn't rolling is because we were all just mostly role playing and the rules, other than that one combat at the end, which we wanted to have a combat to sort of, you know, show those rules before that there was very little rolling. It's true. And, and I think that's okay. We are sitting down to play a game, so we have to recognize that rules exist and and mechanics exist and character sheets exist, but this system, I feel, really frees up the player to try to figure out the world and interact with it. And it does one of the things that is very tropey, but I, I like it. 
is again, it, it sets up the mysteries of the world so that your players and your characters are both going into it ignorant. So as they learn things, it's cool to explore and to learn things, which one of my reasons I don't like to play in established settings is because very often I don't know as much about it as someone else. If I go play in Forgotten Realms, I guarantee you I know less about Forgotten Realms than anyone at the table. And if I use the wrong noble's name or I talk about Elminster the wrong way, it's just going to cause them to become unimmersed. But when you start in a game where it's like you don't know anything, your characters don't know anything, the point of the game is to explore and find things then it, it kind of frees you up from having that problem and everything is interesting and new. And I just really like that. Of course, if we played this new system regularly, if this was our campaign, we would eventually learn things. So we would lose that sense of wonder. Uh, yes, uh, eventually over time you would, uh, but then it might be replaced by a sense of accomplishment that we have solved these mysteries. Or a sense of bitterness after your fifth character has died and <laughs> the forest continues to win despite your best efforts. Yep. I'm I'm going to play another ogre so I can have amnesia again. It, it goes back to the whole old trope of, oh, this is Rogue the First. Oh, he's dead. This is his brother, Rogue the Second. Oh, he's dead. His cousin, Rogue the Third. What, what, what's that from uh, of Dyson Men, uh, Spango Garnet Killer, the 17th or whatever? Something like that, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, something else we didn't even really talk about here, the whole thing with the shadows. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think Scott very briefly touched on which site at the beginning, but yeah, the shadows was something I wanted to talk on. Scott, do you want to touch on that a bit more uh, yeah so so the the mechanics list for uh certainly for races and and the character sheet includes a slot for for customization of of the the color and and sort of vibe of your shadow your shadow is is every living thing in in this in the sumba room system has a shadow and they can be perceived by using the witch side ability of witches or by using a couple of other abilities which i guess are slightly less common and they 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 tell a lot about your character the the, the first thing they tell is is how much uh taint you have from corruption so they can be tainted and blackened but also the 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 colors tell about sort of the harmony you have with with nature or with different races or 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 it's 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 a really free form way to customize your character like an aura is it like dictated by the book like an alignment that like if i've done so many things there's like a matrix somewhere that says you've cast this spell you have this much corruption this is your shadow or do i still have the ability to flavor it how i want the the, the dimension of corruption is defined mechanically the the dimension of colors is more defined like fluff kind of like um you know, mannerisms would be defined for regional people, right? Races have have some suggested colors, like suggested names, but after that, it's up to you. Cool. So this is more of a psychic aura, if we want to put a American trope on it. I was kind of picturing, and this is something Matt commented on to me, uh, uh, commented to me as well. We kind of thought that this was just your shadow all the time. <laughs> Like, walking into this game, I was like, oh, I cast a weird green shadow with a silver thing in it. Okay, sure. I just took it at its word, so I have a totally different perception of what's happening right now. Yeah, I had a Peter Pan moment. I'm like, my shadow's going to kill me, isn't it? That's awesome. It, it it makes a little bit more sense now that it's it's your aura. It's not the shadow you cast on the ground. Because that would just be too easy. That would be like, oh, you're trying to talk to me about 
negotiating a trade. Let me just look over. Oh man, your shadow's red. F- you, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Who's the murderer? And it's probably the guy over here with a shadow that looks like the g- gates of hell have opened up. Well, that that's why there's no investigate skill. All you do is turn on a <laughs> lamp and look at the shadow. To, 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 to be fair, there is an ability that's, that is switch shadow, where you, you replace your shadow with somebody else's, and it's commonly used by sorcerers. Sorcerer is, is a, a tract of, of um, sort of uh, tomaturgy or witchcraft. And, and like all the, most of the spellcasting specializations allow you to take less corruption for learning a certain family of spells. But uh, the, the sorcerer one embraces corruption. It, it, if you're a sorcerer, you believe that, that all things will end up being corrupting. You might as well get on the express train now and, and enjoy the ride, right? So, so you, you go straight to a black heart, and it's, it's uh, often used by NPCs, but, but they, they always get the ability, I guess, to swap shadows so that, that no one will notice, like, oh, he's the murdering psychopathic SOB, that, oh, no, he, he just he looks like a baker, like a goblin baker for some reason with that coloring, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, so in general, I, I think it's safe to say that we all liked this game a lot. Uh, it had some very interesting mechanics, but overall, we had a great time. Uh, I don't know if this is something I would like to run a long campaign in, but then I haven't read the book, so I'm not really invested in the world yet. I have a feeling that if I really read the fluff and fiction, I would probably be uh, more likely to jump into a long campaign. I, I definitely found myself thinking about it more, especially because, uh, again, um, the amazing artwork. It, it really... It, the, the artwork really drives home what this world is all about. For me, it almost always comes back, as all things do, would I rather play this or would I rather play D&D 5e or whatever the D&D du jour is at the time. And this one, more than most, has me going, maybe. Because I do like to run campaigns. I know here recently we've been running a lot of one-shots, but that's just been for various scheduling reasons. But I enjoy running long-term campaigns. I enjoy running games where you have low hit points and you're, you know, it's a struggle to survive. You know, you're not big damn heroes all the time. And that really fits in my wheelhouse. I love the fact that it's a, a, a mystery setting, so I don't have to worry about someone knowing more than I do about the game. I probably would still lean 60-40 to D&D just because I know it so well and it's, you know, it's, it's familial, but this one really has me interested. I want to play it again, if nothing else, maybe just another, like where we have more time, we can play a little bit longer session, maybe even something that's not written like an adventure to see what a GM could do with that setting. Be very interested in trying that. Uh, but right now I'm still going to lean towards regular D&D just because uh, I know it so well. And speaking for myself as the guy who does like being the big damn hero, I liked being not a hero in this system. When I'm not a hero in D&D, I get frustrated. But being incompetent in this system, I felt okay with that. Hmm. Caleb's okay with being incompetent here. That's that's a rousing endorsement. (laughs) <laughs> your blurb is makes me feel incompetent but i'm okay with that hey that's what goes on the sticker <laughs> all right so yeah i guess one more time around the room any final thoughts anything you want to share before we wrap this one up i'll start with you caleb uh i think it was great had fun 
it definitely want made me want to play more. It definitely made me want to read the book and learn about the the fiction and the fluff and the world. So there you go. All right, Scott. Uh, you know, uh, the experience of, of being handed a, a brand new system and, and being told, learn it and we'll run it is, is always a little bit harrowing, especially when it's it's being recorded. But um, I'd say for that experience, the, the system was very generous. It, it came pre-built with everything that you needed. And it's um, I think it it's the book is a great read. All right. Very cool. As for me, again, I really enjoyed the game. I, I 100% want to play it again. And potentially it could maybe, you know, supersede D&D for me with a little bit more uh, time with it. But there are tons of books on my bookshelf of RPGs that I have bought that I have never played. This is one of those that I will buy even if I never get to play it because the artwork is amazing. And I just think it's cool enough and interesting enough that I would heartily recommend that anyone out there definitely check it out. Uh, buy it. I think there's PDF versions available. I, I don't think it's something you will regret purchasing, even if it doesn't become the game that you play all the time. All right, gentlemen, well, as always, thank you for joining me. So for Caleb, Scott, and Matthew, who's not here, this is Michael, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out the RPGAcademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the drive-thru RPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, the Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.